Welcome, everybody. You can find your seats. Um, glad you're here. Uh, it's, a, it's a day that uh, is celebrated around the world in our culture. Um, a lot of people call it Easter, but as we talked about last week, it's really Passover and first fruits. And um, Easter is the, the name that Catholics came up with because they didn't like the Jewish holidays. Quite honestly, that's true. <laughs> Just do your research. Um, and so uh, we talked about that last week, and you can listen to that message about how God set up in the whole Old Testament this day, um, that this is one of the most important days that we can have because it's the day that we remember everything that Christ and what God did and the Trinity planned for all of human history. It, it is the day that signifies that either Christians are crazy and we're the craziest bunch of people that are on their face of the planet, or it's true. Like, like this was the day, and we'll talk about that in a second, but, but it really did and was the culmination of all of that. And so this is the time that for thousands of years, I mean, if you think about this, what we're celebrating and talking about today goes back thousands and thousands and thousands of years. Like the Jewish people, when they celebrated being delivered from Egypt and the slavery that they had and the slavery to their sin and being delivered out of that, um, and God taking them out and then giving them his word, which is first fruits, and giving them the scriptures. And, and we look at that through scripture. Like there's, It's this beautiful picture that everything's been getting ready for the moment that we celebrate today. I don't know if any of you have taken the time to get something ready like that, that you've saved for retirement, or you do things that, that gets you ready. Most of us are really terrible at that, right? We just go by the seat of our pants. You know, whatever tomorrow brings, good luck. God doesn't do things that way. I'm just letting you know. That's not how God works. God has a plan. He's unfolding. Sometimes we know that plan, and sometimes he asks us to fly by the seat of our pants by faith knowing that he has a plan and know that it's going to happen according to the way he planned. And that's kind of why we've kind of jumped into this message or this series through 2 Peter because what Peter's writing about in his letter to, to believers in the first century church is he's writing to them, and we talked about this the last couple of weeks, he's trying to get them to understand the knowledge of what God wants them to know. And he's saying, you know, God has revealed these things throughout all of history and there are people that are coming in and they're deceiving you. And, and you don't even know you're being deceived. You want to know how to, I know that's true? Because there were three people at the foot of Jesus' cross. Three. Why? Everyone else was deceived. Everyone. Everyone else didn't believe. Everyone else believed that when Jesus said those Aramaic words, that Elijah was going to come down from the heavens, that the, temp, that the Romans were going to be overthrown, and all of a sudden the Jews were going to rule the world. And when that didn't happen, there were three people. There were three people that took a stand and said, we still believe. We don't know why this is happening. We don't understand. And as we can see in Scripture, other than Mary, maybe, None of them understood. Why didn't they have the knowledge of what was going on when Jesus was on the cross? Because they had been lied to for thousands of years. The Pharisees, the scribes, the people that were supposed to tell them the truth about God had been lying to them for their own greed, for their own purposes. Jesus doesn't get to the cross any other way. And for us, we don't get him until we admit that that's who we are. Until we admit that we will twist any knowledge we get to benefit us, 
to benefit our little world the way we want to create it, until we get to the place where we acknowledge that, there is no Passover for us. There's no new life or resurrection because we won't die to the old one. And the reason Jesus is true is because Jesus said, my message is so true that I will lay my life down for it, where you'll compromise in a second to keep your life. And Jesus said, not me. I'm going to fulfill what was promised in the third chapter of Genesis all the way through. And what I'm doing fulfills that. And that's why today's a big day. That's why around the world it's kind of a, a big moment. It's also why even today we've been lied to. We don't know our history. We don't know what this time of year is about. We don't understand how it fits into the theme of God's will for all of human history. And it breaks my heart sometimes. Broke my heart this week as you go through the stores and you see Easter bunnies and eggs and all those things. And you're like, people have no idea the glorious God of the universe that has been telling his message for thousands of years. And when Christ comes back, people are going to miss it again. They're going to miss it again, just like he came the first time. Because they're not ready. They don't know. And so Peter is writing his letter to say, I want you guys to have the knowledge about God. You've got to have this knowledge. And, he, and today what we're going to talk about is he says, I want you to have understanding and a reminder. Throughout this book, he says, I want you to have understanding and reminders. The, the, the book of Proverbs, which is all about wisdom, right? The word understanding is all over that book. See, there's knowledge that you can have without having understanding, right? You know this if you have kids, right? You can look at your kids and say, do you know? Uh-huh. And they do the complete opposite. You're like, did you, did you not know? I knew. And I understood I didn't want to do it, so I did it. Like, I thought we had an understanding. No, I have knowledge. You have knowledge. We don't have an understanding. I did what I wanted to do. See, that's what we do in our hearts with God. We love all this knowledge so that we can tell people all this knowledge we have, but true understanding transforms our life and makes us look back over our life and be reminded of who God is, his grace, his law, his beauty, what he's done in our life, and it causes us to be in even greater awe of him because of it. See, that's where true understanding leads. Here's what Peter starts his letter out. We've read this the last couple of weeks. He says, this letter is from Simon Peter a slave and apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained a faith of equal privilege with ours through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. And I'll say it every week. He is saying right there, this is Yahweh of the Old Testament who is Yahweh saves, who is the Messiah. That's what Jesus Christ means. It means Yahweh who saves, who is the Messiah. I said it the last couple of weeks. Christ is not his last name. It means Messiah. It means he is what everything's about. He's the promised one of the Old Testament. Everything's about him. And you look at me and I say those things and all of us go, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got knowledge. Really? Do you have understanding of what that means? Do you tremble a little bit when you hear that? Does your heart tremble just a little bit when you think, oh my goodness, this is, what I'm hearing today is actually true stuff. Whew, that's big if I really pause for a moment. He goes on and he says, my grace and peace be multiplied to you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. His divine power has been given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge, there it is, 
the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. And by these things he has given us very great and precious promises. Reminders. Reminders. Very precious reminders. We talked about a couple of weeks ago, we like all the positive reminders, right? We like the positive promises, but we don't like the promises where Jesus said, you will have trouble, you will be persecuted, you're going to die. I don't like those promises. I just want the good ones. Like, right? Don't remind me of the bad ones. No, the bad ones you need to be reminded of too because it reminds you of where you're headed and it gives you hope and it helps you not cling to this life too tightly. We go on and this is where we jump in. In Peter 2, 2, 1, Peter says, but there were also false prophets among the people just as there will be false teachers among you. You see, just when, like when Jesus came, there were false prophets. Jesus called the leaders, the religious leaders of his day, sons of their father, the devil. That's offensive. I'm just, I don't know if you know that. That's very offensive to walk into a church service, to walk into the temple and be in the temple complex and say, hey, all y'all, you all are sons of your father, the devil. Thank you. Glad I could come and let you know that. That's incredibly offensive. And that's what Jesus did. Wait, but, but they're the priests. They're, they're doing the right thing. They're making the sacrifices. Yeah, they're doing all those things, but their hearts are wicked. And that's exactly what Peter goes on to say. He says, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, and will bring swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their unrestrained ways, and the way of the truth will be blasphemed because of them. They will exploit you in their greed with deceptive words, their condemnation pronounced long ago, is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. See, here's our problem. We don't believe this applies to us today, just like the people in Jesus' day didn't believe it applied to their religious leaders. How do you know I'm not a false prophet? I could be. How do you know? Because I used the Bible? Satan used the Bible against Jesus when he was tempted in the wilderness. He used it three times. Satan quoted scripture to Jesus, and Jesus quoted scripture back to him three times. Just because you use the Bible doesn't mean that you know what you're talking about, that you have understanding. You may have knowledge. You may know what it says, but understanding and being reminded of who you are changes you. See, Satan doesn't want understanding. Our enemies don't want understanding. They want knowledge to be able to use it against others. And this is why Jesus was crucified. Can we just admit that? When he came... All of the people in his day were like, yeah, he's the false prophet. Let's crucify him. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's crucify him. You got to check in with yourself when you look through these things. Because it's easy just to say, well, they say they're a Christian, so I guess it's true. One of the key signs that Peter says, here it is. He goes, one of the things you can tell if it's a false prophecy, secretly. There's a book I saw that recently came out was talking about the the secrets of the wisdom of Solomon. And immediately when I saw that title, I'm like, I will not read that book. I don't think Solomon was trying to keep a secret. He wrote three books and made it very clear what he was trying to say. Anytime I see that, it's a secret knowledge. I'm like, well, that scares me to death. I do not want to read that. Because I'm pretty sure God didn't make things secret. He made it very clear. He wrote it over and over again, the same stuff, so that we get bored with it and we're like, yeah, whatever. So that shows our heart, right? It's exactly, 
Peter's like, the first thing you can tell is they're going to come in and say, I got a secret. And then we're like, ooh, and then we're caught, right? And the reason we love secret knowledge is because deep down inside, we want to be smarter than everybody else around us. We don't want to believe that it's just about simple. It's just about being faithful. He goes on and he, he says this. And see, God, he makes himself very clear. There, there are things that God doesn't tell us, right? Because if we knew everything, who would be God? If we knew everything, who would be God? We would be. Because we would know everything, so we'd be God too. God's like, you don't, you're not God. So, so God doesn't tell us everything, but he gives us more than enough to know. Am I right? How many of you know, have memorized your entire Bible? That's right. You got more than enough to know. But see, I don't like what God tells me to know. I want to know secret things. I don't want the simple stuff. I want to know deeper things. And it's not wrong to want to know God's deeper character, to see him in his greatness and awe. But let's be honest, most of us don't read our Bible and think, man, I just want to see how big God is today. We read the Bible so we can say, I just want to tell somebody how wrong they are today. <laughs> he goes on and he says this, there's a difference between false teaching and not teaching everything. See, there's a difference between false teaching and not teaching everything. There are a lot of people out there who are teaching the truths about Jesus, but they don't know to teach everything, right? That doesn't necessarily mean they're a false teacher. It just means that they're not teaching everything. So we have to be careful to understand that there are brothers and sisters that we have in Christ that they know a little bit of the gospel, but they haven't allowed themselves to understand the full picture. So we don't judge them and say, well, since they don't know what I don't know, they can't know God. No, the gospel is very simple. Do you believe that Jesus was the son of God? Do you believe that he came and lived a perfect life, was born of a virgin, that he died, that he came back to life? Do you believe that there's no other way for you to be saved unless he dies in your place to save you from the mess you deserve and that you need to give your life to him? If you understand that, that's salvation, right? That's how you're saved. But if you just stay there, that's a sad place to stay. That's like having a kid in your house that just knows they're born and they don't know how to do anything else. At 26, they're still messing their diaper and crying. Everyone would say there's something wrong. And sometimes there are kids that are that way because they're broken, because we live in a broken world. But most of the time, if we're honest, we enable that mess. We don't confront it. And Peter's writing to say, be careful. He says, they will deny him as master that bought them. See, everybody wants communion. Everybody wants Jesus to be on their side. They don't want him to be their master that bought them. Because to say that he bought me means I have to admit that I put myself in a mess and that I put myself in slavery. I don't want to admit that. I'm a pretty good person. I'm not that bad. And Peter's like, you can see, because they won't tell you that you need to make Jesus the master of your life. They'll just tell you you can get a quick, easy fix and have grace, and then Jesus will give you whatever you want which is why they denied him on the cross. Because they said, that's not what I want. That's not what I want my master to look like. That's not what I want my Lord to look like. I want a ruler. I want somebody that I'm going to vote for that's going to come in and close the border and do crazy awesome stuff with our military and drop nukes on countries I don't like. That's the guy I want. Jesus wasn't that guy. And just like we do, crucify him. Next guy, please. Next man up. Next leader up, 
Let's vote for a different guy and a different guy and a different guy. And all the, and none of them lay down their life. None of them. We have, we, we've rarely had a president that will lay down their life for us. I'm not against our country. I'm just saying they're people like we are. We need something bigger than just a person. We need God. So he goes on and he says, many of them have no idea they're heretics. They're just teaching what they've been taught. And then the key here, look at this. They say they will exploit you in their greed. In their greed. See, I'm not greedy. Neither are you. You're not greedy. You just want enough. I'm not greedy. I just want enough. Right? I'm not greedy. I just, I just want enough, a little bit more. I mean, I'm not greedy like that other guy. Like, I just want a little bit more. Just, just enough. When is enough enough? Right? It's never enough. See, that's why Christ died to say, I'm enough. And if you believe that, then whatever I give you, whatever I ask you to do is enough. And so when we look at Christ and he says, enough, it's finished, we look and go, I don't want that for my life. I, I don't want that to be the picture. That's, that's not enough for me. And he comes and he goes, look, no one ever came. I've, I've never had anyone come to the altar broken over their greed in all my years of ministry. And I've said this before. Never had someone just broken over their greed. They're broken over their sexual sin, their addictions. They're broken over maybe their anger, their bitterness. I mean, those things, yes, but, but not greed. See, we live in a country that tells us that greed is really good. It's profitable. We live in a country that tells us that greed is something that, that helps people. Versus saying, well, it's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to want to, to be a blessing to others, which means God's going to use you to have things flow through you, so you're going to have stuff to give. That's not wrong, but if we're really honest, most of the time we're not looking for that. We're looking to have enough for ourselves, and then the enough keeps getting bigger if we're not careful. You know, and here's the deal. Most of the time, false teaching boils down to one thing. You ready for this? Motive. It's motive. What's my motive? What's your motive? The people that lead us, what is their motive? And how does it show up in their actions? Your motive will show up in your simple actions in the way you do your life. It will always show up. Good or bad motives, they'll show up over time long enough. And your motives will be exposed. And Peter is saying, look at their motives. All the time, they're trying to get you because they're saying, I want what's best for you. God wants what's best for you. Here's what's best for you. And it's never to lay down their life. You know what's best for us? That cross. That, that's best for us. What Jesus did. That's, that's best. That's perfect. No, 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 no. I'm glad he did that for me so I don't have to. Really, because Jesus said, if you will not pick up your cross and follow him, you're not one of his. Are you willing to get up another day and to pick up the cross to say, God, today, again, I give you my life. And when I pick it up today, I'm not going to have a martyr mentality. I'm just going to have a grateful mentality that I get to, to fulfill scripture. I get to serve you. And I'm going to call people out, right? Jesus called people out 
as he was going. And it's, it, it's not about I, I just become a martyr and I let everybody beat on me and, 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 and abuse me. That's not the, the gospel. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus was clear about who he was. Jesus confronted. When Pilate said, you know, asked him questions, Jesus threw back the question in his face, you tell me what truth is. <laughs> that wasn't backing down. <laughs> That's kind of bold to say to the leader who holds your life in his hands, and you go, yeah, why don't you answer your own question? You tell me what truth is, buddy. That's bold. So God doesn't tell us to roll over. He asks us to represent him in what he wants. And here's the key. The surefire way, way to understand false teaching is a knowledge about Jesus and the life of him that benefits us now, for me, in this life. It doesn't point to the afterlife. It doesn't point for the next generation. It doesn't look to others. It looks for me now. Because see, here's the deal. The essence of greed is what do I want and what I, do I think I deserve? That's the essence of greed. What do I want and what do I think I deserve? And if I understand that I deserve death because Jesus died, if I understand that when I embrace that, he tells me there's a resurrection coming and proves it, then all of a sudden it changes my wants. It changes what I want in this life and what I think I should get out of this life. It changes my perspective about how I work, how I play, my calendar, my finances. It transforms me. And that's what Peter's talking about. See, I, I heard something this week, and it was really convicting. And here's what it was. Do you listen to understand, or do you listen to reply? Let me repeat that. Do you listen to understand, or do you listen to reply? See, I think most of us, if we're really honest, we listen so we can tell God what we want. We don't listen because we truly want to understand what he wants. To, to really go before him and say, God, I'm yours. What do you want from me, my children, my marriage, my, my life? Like, like I, not what I want. Because see, how many of the people that crucified Jesus, do you think they, they wanted like, they, they were thinking, I want really bad things? How many of the Pharisees and Sadducees, do you think they were going to temple every day and going, man, I can't wait to to want bad things today and to tell everybody to want bad things. No, they all thought these are good things. The problem was the motive was so twisted it was bad. Peter goes on and he says this, for if God didn't spare the angels who sinned but threw them down into Tarsus or to Tarsus and delivered them to be kept in chains of darkness until judgment, if he didn't spare the ancient world but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, when he brought a flood on the world of the ungodly, and if he reduced the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes and condemned them to ruin, making them an example to those who are going to be ungodly, and if he rescued righteous Lot, distressed by the unrestrained behavior of the immoral, for as he lived among them, that righteous man tormented himself day by day with the lawless deeds he saw and heard. This is one of the longest sentences, what we're reading right here, in all of the Bible. This is, how many of you ever got in trouble for a run-on sentence writing? Okay, yeah. Peter makes one sentence from verse 4 to verse 9 is one sentence. 
It's one of the longest sentences in all of the scripture in the Greek. It is one sentence, five verses. We're only to verse seven. There's two more verses to this sentence. <laughs> like Peter is, he's like, he can't stop himself. He's like, and then this, and then this, and then this. And he's like, I got to keep putting commas because I'm not done yet, right? I'm not to the period yet. I mean, he's saying, look, we know this stuff. God doesn't spare. We think, well, it's no big deal. False teaching's no big deal. God, God forgives everybody. And Peter's like, no, be careful. He punished angels. He punished the people of Noah's day. He punished, like, be careful. God is just and righteous. And can I tell you, that's what the cross was. The cross was look at God's justice and look at his righteousness. Deal with that for a minute because that should be you. And he's in your place. And that's what Peter's saying. He's like, man, be careful. He goes on and he says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially those who follow the polluting desires of the flesh and despise authority. Bold, arrogant people, they do not tremble when they blaspheme the glorious ones. The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Really? I don't think he does. Why? You didn't rescue your son. You killed him. See, here's our problem. God defines what a trial is. And God defines what rescue means. And we don't like that. And that's exactly why they put Christ on the cross. Because Jesus made the definition of what a trial was and the definition of what rescue was very clear, not secret, clear. And the people said, we don't want it. We don't want that. And they put him on the cross. And then God said, you think you got him? You think you took out my son? You think you guys, humanity's in control? I've had this under control since the beginning of time. He's coming back to life. <laughs> I'm going to rescue him. But see, here's our problem. I, you, we want to be rescued without death. I don't want to die to myself. I don't want to die to my will. I don't want to die to my things. And die to, I don't want to die. And God said with Christ, there's no other way. If you want to be rescued, this is the plan now. The plan is you die and you trust me to resurrect you. And Jesus said, I knew that was the plan since the beginning. That's why I'm willing to give myself over, to die in your place. And so God calls believers, if you're a believer in Jesus, to say and declare, I'm willing to die now in others' places. I'm willing to give my life like Christ did for others, understanding that it's worth it because someday when the trumpet sounds, my body's going to come back and I'm going to be like, whoa, that was awesome. And that's what Peter's writing. He's saying, look, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly. And you and I, I'm, listen, I'm just as guilty sometimes. We can complain to God and say, you're not rescuing me. You're not taking care of me. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. And the whole time God's like, the cross? <laughs> Did you see what happened to my son? Like, I'm not asking you to do anything I haven't already done for you. 
I'm not asking you to like die and I didn't. See, that's what all the false teachers do. The false teachers say, you go die for me, but I'm sitting in my throne room taking care of anything and making orders. I'm not dying for you. And our Savior left the throne room of heaven to come into a manly body to be the sacrifice for us. And then he says, when you come to know me, my Holy Spirit infuses you. I leave you on earth and I'm asking you to be me for others, to give your life. And when you fail, guess what? Communion. (laughs) The Lord's Supper. When you fail, you remember that I can pass over your sins again. And you come to me and you confess and I'm faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from unrighteousness because I love you. That's the cross. That's the resurrection. He goes on. He says this. He says, I love this. He goes, and you think they're getting away with it. They're not. And here's the other thing he says, bold, arrogant people, they don't tremble. See, here's one of the things that can happen. It's easy to point your fingers and say, they're a false teacher. They're a false teacher. They're f-. And be bold and arrogant saying, I know and you don't. I know you don't. And you're bold and arrogant without trembling. When you approach someone because they're teaching or believing someone something false, there should be a trembling in you when you approach that person. Not an arrogance. It always amazes me that when Jesus went into the temple to confront the scribes and Pharisees, like fully confront them, one of the most beautiful pictures of what he does is he goes into the temple and he sits down. He gets some leather, he gets some metal, maybe some bones, and he just starts a craft project in the temple. (laughs) Patiently working on a craft project. Of course, the disciples, by this time, because this is later in his ministry, they know not to ask Jesus stupid questions as much as they used to, right? Because anytime they ask a stupid question, Jesus, like, confronts them, and they're like, oh, I was, and everybody laughs. Like, you're, all the 11 are like, <laughs> like, they're like, because you have that happen, right? Bad question. You, they were human. You know that went on. And here he is making a craft project, and they're like, what's he making? Maybe like you sitting in church right now, you bring in some leather and some straps, and you're sitting in church, and you're just back there listening, he's, Making something. And maybe Jesus was talking. Hi, how you doing? He's talking. Making it, you know, taking his time. Jesus made things perfect, so it probably took a while. And all of a sudden, he gets up. He's like, okay. And you look, and he's made a whip. A cat of nine tails with bone shards and metal shards on the end that he's woven out of leather. And all of a sudden, he stands up. He goes, okay, guys, I got something to do. He starts throwing over tables, flips the communion table, flips the sound table, starts whipping at you, and you are running for your lives. That was Jesus. That's what he did. That's why they crucified him. Because they said, you don't have any right to judge us. And Jesus is like, I have every right to judge you. And right now, I'm just taking a belt to your rear end (laughs) because I care more that you understand that that than your soul perishes forever in my Father's final judgment. But see, Jesus didn't take the whip and throw everybody out of the temple and then go in and kill the Pharisees and Sadducees, rip the veil in two, sit on the throne and say, everybody come now. Jesus said, yes, I threw you out. You're not doing what is supposed to be done in my father's house, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go right back to my job, go right back to what I need to do, and I'm going to live and wait for my father to tell me the time when it's time for me to die. So I'm going to take a stand, but then I'm going to go right back to a humble life, a humble living. 
See, this is the picture we don't like. This is why he was crucified. It's why the resurrection is so important. Because if he wasn't resurrected, we believe a crazy man. We have no hope. Because where he ended up should not give us hope. It should panic us. He goes on and he says, they have polluting desires. They blasphemy the glorious one. He says, however, angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a slanderous charge against them before the Lord. But these people, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, speak blasphemies about things they don't understand. They just make stuff up. They don't speak clearly about what they can know. They aren't willing to say, I don't know. They have an answer for every little thing. How about you just say, I I don't know. And he says they'll speak blasphemies, and they in their destruction, they too will be destroyed, suffering harm as the payment for unrighteousness. They consider it a pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They don't even hide it. They're spots and blemishes, delighting in their deceptions as they feast with you. Think about that for a minute. Peter says, they delight in their deceptions. And you can just hear this church. You know, he's writing. And each church that it's read in. And you can hear the people go, oh, yeah, I'm glad that, man, I know that church over in Ephesus. They really struggle with those kinds of people, right? And he says, no, 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 no. They feast with you. They're in your church too. You see, there are some of you that believe false things. I'm not saying you're a false teacher. I'm saying you believe false things. There's some of you that are willing to read books and read materials from guys that have no business teaching. They are false teachers. They're wrong. And and it doesn't bother you. It doesn't bother you to ask the question, what's really true? Because I want to be careful what I'm taking into my body. I I, I want to be careful what I believe. I want to be sure that it all goes back to a knowledge about Jesus and what happened to him, which was the cross and the resurrection. And instead, we always like to go to teachers that tell us we won't ever have to go to a cross and we won't ever have to have faith in a resurrection. That we can have the resurrection now. Paul talks about that in one of his letters. There are those that say the resurrection's already happened. You don't have to wait for it. You can have your best life now. Listen, the only people who get their best life now are people that are going to hell, according to Scripture. They're the only ones. Jesus never promised that you would have your best life now. He said you will have your best life when you're with me. And so you can have a great life as long as you stay with me through life. And when you get resurrected someday, you'll have the ultimate life. And you see, it says they they delight in their deceptions. These are people that say, well, you can't judge me because I'm a Christian. How dare you judge me? Can can I just tell you that if I told you I was a doctor of medicine because you were having like a side pain and I said, hey, could could I operate on you? I'm a doctor. I I, I am. I got some tools in my bag out there in my car. You know, I know it looks like a utility knife, but it's really a surgical knife. Let me interpret for you how this is the new surgical knife that I have. See how shiny it is? We will do that with Christian teaching all day long. But we would never do that with a doctor. We want to see his credentials. We want to know what he's doing. We want to think through this. We ask our friend. We try to figure this out. Oh, no, we'll jump right into the next best secret, you know, Christian thing that comes out. 
We don't question people's lifestyles. That they say, oh, I'm a believer. And you look at their lifestyle and you're like, I, I don't know if you are or not. It's not my place to judge salvation. Like, it's, I'm not running around judging people's salvation. But you may be teaching some false things. Because I'm not sure that's what God did. I don't think Jesus got a mansion in Jerusalem and like said, come to my mansion. Pretty sure he died with nothing then came back to life and said, I'm going to invite you to die for nothing and then come to my mansion after you're dead. Does that mean we shouldn't have nice things? Not at all. God blesses. God gives. We have to be very careful. It says they have eyes full of adultery and they're always looking for sin. They seduce unstable people and have hearts trained in greed. There it is again. Their hearts are so good at twisting things to show you this is for your benefit. This is for your good. And it never leads to struggle, strife, death, problems. It always leads to you feeling better. Can I just tell you that if you read the Bible, most of the people in the Bible that God used felt awful a lot. Their hearts were broken over what they saw. We just read about Lot. It said Lot's heart was broken because of the mess he lived in in Sodom and Gomorrah. Every day he looked and he was just like, oh. And he looked to God for salvation and God saved him. See, that's us. And, and so often, we, it's not we're supposed to walk around depressed and, and awful. That's not it. Because if we understand we have a resurrection, we should be the happiest people in the world. Right? It's just, what are you chasing after? Because you got to be careful. They've gone astray by abandoning the straight path, and they followed the path of Balaam, the son of Baor, or Bozor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness but received a rebuke for his transgression. Check this out. A donkey that could not talk spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's irrationality. If you remember the story in the Old Testament of Balaam, we preached on this when we did the book of Genesis last summer. Balaam is riding his donkey and he's getting paid to go put a curse on the children of Israel when, he, when he's already been told not to. And he keeps playing around with false teaching. He says, no, I can't do that. And then they offer him more money. Well, maybe I can do that. No, I can't do that. And they offer him more money. And Balaam just keeps hanging out with the people that keep offering him stuff. And finally, he's on the road saying, you know what? I'm going to go see if I'm really good because I'm going to get paid well for this. And the angel of the Lord stands before him ready to kill him with a sword, right? And his donkey runs him against the wall. Ba then the donkey's like, I'm not getting killed. So the donkey falls to the ground, right? Balaam is, gets a whip. He's beating his donkey, and the donkey's like, stop it. He keeps beating the donkey, doesn't realize donkey just spoke to me. That's a big deal, right? He's so irrational in his anger and what he wants and, and what he's decided to do. He's beating a talking donkey. It doesn't even cause him to pause for a moment. And go, my donkey just spoke. He says, nah, nah. and then the donkey has to say, why are you beating me? And then he's like, oh. and then the angel of the Lord appears to him. He's like, ah. And he's like, oh, wait, donkey, donkey, angel of the Lord, something's going on here. God has to do that much to get our attention because we're so twisted up inside. And in God's grace, listen, in God's grace, he did that for Balaam. He loved Balaam enough to warn him, to make his donkey talk because he loved him. God loved us enough to send his son to speak to us, to lay down his life for us, to take the beating and then look at us and go, what are you doing? God, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. That's why he uses this illustration. He goes on, he says, these people are springs without water. 
melts driven by a whirlwind, or mist driven by a whirlwind. The gloom of darkness has been uh, reserved for them. Have you ever had this? Like, it's a spring without water. Have you been, ever been really thirsty and you, like, see a water fountain and you go up to it and it says, out of order, right? And you're like, oh, seriously. Yeah, exactly what he's saying. He says it looks promising. What they say seems promising. But when you really get up there and you try to actually get the good stuff out, you realize, I don't got anything. He goes, that's exactly what they are. And then he says, for by uttering boastful, empty words, they seduce with fleshly desires and debauchery people who've barely escaped from those who live in error. He says, and they will go after the little ones. That's why Jesus said, if you hurt one of my children, man, a millstone should be tied around your neck and thrown in the water. He wasn't talking about little babies necessarily or kids. That's part of it. What he was saying is, the little ones that come to me finally surrendering to me, they make their heart open. You need to be careful that they don't get attacked and be taught false things and go down the wrong paths. And these people look for them. They're in the church looking for that weak person, that person that struggles, and they're going to go right for them. And they're going to try to get them to believe them over all the other leadership. They're going to try to get them and suck them in and get them and just hurt them. He goes on and he says, look at this. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves to corruption since people are enslaved to what defeats them. See, they go in, they say, oh, you don't have to die. You don't have to give your life. If you follow me, man, I, I can, it'd be better for you. Don't listen to them. See, this is hard stuff, but this is exactly what Jesus was dealing with. Jesus was saying, don't listen to them. And they're like, why should we listen to you? And then you're on a cross. Yeah, we definitely picked the right choice there. Our Pharisees are still in the temple making sacrifices, still praying for us. You're dead. I think I believe them. It goes on and it says, For having escaped the world's impurity through knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they again are entangled in these things and defeated. The last state is worse for them than the first. He's talking about the little ones here. He's not talking about the false prophets. The, pro, the pronoun that he uses there, he switches. And so what he's saying is he's saying the little ones that escaped... Because they wanted the knowledge of God, he said, now they're defeated and the, what the, their, their, their state the first time is worse now than it was before. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It just means their state, who they are, their belief has been so messed up. And can I tell you that we have Christians, we have people like this running around everywhere that have been so hurt by false teaching. They've been so hurt by this that they don't know what to do. And, and you look at them and their state is worse now than it was before. Because they, they're so messed up. And he said, for it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy command delivered to them. He's not, again, this isn't a salvation issue. He's saying, man, it would have been better if they wouldn't have known what's right because then they would hurt so badly now. When they know what's right and they don't know how to get to it and they don't know what to believe and they're so confused. That's why Jesus, when he looked at Jerusalem and he said, Oh, I wish I could gather you. But you don't listen. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing wallows in the mud. Isn't that us? Isn't that you and me? So often? You see, the great thing about dog vomit is at least I know where it came from if I'm the dog, right? It's mine. I know where it came from. Doesn't scare me. I just eat it back up. 
And see, that's what we do. We get comfortable with our sin. And we're like, well, it's, I don't know if I can trust that. I don't know if I can trust the cross. I don't know if I can trust Christ, but this vomit looks a little better. At least I know where it came from. I'm not sure where that's going. Or wallers in the mud. You clean it all up and it just goes right back in the mud. He goes on, he says, this is Paul speaking. Paul says this, when I came to you, brothers, announcing the testimony of God to you, I did not come with brilliance of speech or wisdom, for I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is Paul, one of the most educated men of all of Scripture, one of the most highly educated people in all of the writers of Scripture. This guy knows his stuff, and he said, I purposely came. And actually, if you go back and read how he behaved when he was in Corinth, he actually worked a side job. He was bivocational. He actually took up tent making because he wanted to be sure that his message didn't get tainted by greed. I want you to see that I'm not coming in here like all the other people that come through Corinth to get teachers. I'm coming in here, I'm going to work my can off, and I'm going to stay. And he ends up staying years. It's the longest place Paul ever stayed was in Corinth. He stayed there for years, working and serving and preaching to them and giving them the simple message about Jesus. Then he says... For I didn't think it was a good idea to know anything else. I came to you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Isn't that what Peter said? They don't tremble? And Paul's like, I didn't come in going, yeah, and this about Jesus, and this, and this. I came into you with much, much fear, weak, trembling. Like, will they believe? I hope they do. I'll give my life to prove to them. That he is who he says he is. He says, my speech and my proclamation were not with persuasive words of wisdom, but with a powerful demonstration of the Spirit. There is no recorded miracle that Paul ever did in Corinth. Not a one. So when you read a powerful demonstration of the Spirit, it's tempting to say, oh, because he came in and he was like zipping miracles and lightning bolts and stuff was happening. There are recorded miracles of Paul in other cities. There's not a single recorded miracle that Paul did in, in Corinth. So what was the powerful demonstration of the Spirit if there was no miracle? It was a guy surrendering his life to work a side job, to give his life, to take care of the body of Christ, and to stay there as long as he could, as God would let him. Even in the midst of beatings, even in the midst of attacks, he gave his life. That was the powerful demonstration of the Paul did in Corinth. He goes on and he says this, <laughs> so that your faith may not be based on man's wisdom, but on God's power. The reason I did it this way, the reason God had me do it this way, is so that you'll trust in God's wisdom. That's the Bible. That's the scriptures. I want you to trust in God's wisdom, not in man's power to make things happen, which is why when I came, I didn't do anything powerful. I didn't do anything fancy. I didn't do that. I just wanted you to see him and how great he was. And so I lived my life differently in Corinth than I did other places because I wanted you to see how simple this is goes on and he says this in 1 Corinthians, or Peter says this in 2 Peter. Dear friends, this is now the second letter I've written to you. In both letters, I want, you, I want to develop a genuine understanding with a reminder. There it is. 
I want you to develop a genuine understanding with a reminder so that you can remember the words previously spoken by who? The holy prophets and the command of our Lord and Savior given through your apostles. The reason I'm writing this letter is because I want you to understand how the entire Old Testament, how all of it. See, Moses was a prophet. And he wrote the first five books. Solomon was a prophet. These were prophetic people. A prophet is just someone who speaks God's word. So anyone who wrote God's word is a prophet. He's saying, I want you to understand the whole picture. I don't want you to just get hung up on one teaching and then cling to that and not see the whole big picture of what God's doing. I want you to see all of it because it's awesome. That's exactly what Peter says. And he says, and I want you to understand that, that we apostles are now writing and we are writing the words of God. Now I ask you this, Luke twenty two fourteen. 14, before I read this, let me ask you, how can we trust these prophets and these apostles? How do we know this isn't just made up like the other scriptures that are written, like the Quran, like the Upanishads, like, how do we know this is true? How can we believe these apostles and these prophets? This is what Jesus says will be the proof. When the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. Then he said to them, I fervently desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I'll not eat again until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this as a reminder. Have understanding, a remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood, not by the animal's blood's sacrifice, but by my blood that is shed for you. You see, Jesus is saying, all the prophets, they died for you. Moses laid his life down for you. David laid his life down for his people. Were they sinners? Oh yeah, they messed up. But they proved themselves to be true in the way that they continued to give their life for their God. And he said, that's what we've done. We've given our lives. Paul and Peter both say that. Jesus says, the proof is going to be, I'm going to do something you're not expecting. I'm going to give my life. When everyone else wants to take life and tells you that they're right, because look at the life I have, right? I'm right, because look at all I have. Look at all I've done. Jesus says, I'm right, because I'm willing to give it all up for you. Because I'm going to trust that my heavenly Father will bring me to life. Paul says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, look at this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Isn't it interesting he said not the resurrection? You proclaim his death. You don't know why we proclaim his death? Because it reminds us of Passover. It reminds us that God's people all the way through had to continue to proclaim their death to be reminded that it's not about this life. It's about the one God will bring. So you proclaim, I need this death again. I need to die again. And I'm ready to, to live for you. I'm, I'm trusting your resurrection. I'm not trusting in my ability, my works, that I can make this happen. And this little thing I do doesn't make me right before you. What makes me right before you is that I remember what this means. You did this for me. This bread, this cup is, was done for me. You gave it as a gift. It's not something I earned. It's something you gave. He goes on and he says, so a man should examine himself in this way. He should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats the drinks, 
eats and drinks without recognizing the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Without recognizing your body and the body of Christ and our purpose that our bodies are dying, but that God is going to what? Give us new bodies. And you remember that. He says, if we are properly evaluating ourselves, we would not be judged. In other words, if you're properly evaluating yourself, you don't have to worry about being a false prophet because you're constantly coming back to what? The knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, which is what Peter's writing about. And if you continue to come back there and say, what would Jesus do? What would he do? And you go, oh, he died. Yeah, he may be asking us to do the same. And he goes on and he says, I love this. We are disciplined by the Lord so that we may not be condemned with the world. A good father carefully makes a whip, sometimes puts it to the rear end of his children, and then goes right back out and serves them because he loves them. Because he knows that they need to see that this life isn't about them and what they can get and what they can get from me or from others. It's about them understanding that they have everything from me and that I want them to go out and give to others. See, that's the picture of what Paul is writing. And so we don't need to go to the table feeling judged. We go to the table knowing that Christ has taken our judgment. And we go to the table and we say, God, I'm ready to surrender again. Here I am. I confess. Thank you. Thank you that I can trust in your resurrection. And This doesn't make me right before you. What makes me right before you is the fact that I continue to come back to you. You're everything. You're everything. See, that's the gospel. That's what we're to do. So can I just encourage you to stop believing false things? Believe the truth. How do we know that Jesus isn't just another false teacher? The resurrection. Muhammad went to the grave and he stayed there. Buddha went to the grave and he stayed there. Every leader we have is going to die and stay there unless they know Jesus. And then they'll be resurrected. Jesus is the only one that came back to life. And they did everything they could to keep him from coming back to life when you read the story. They sent soldiers. They told lies. They did everything they could to keep him from coming back. And they couldn't stop it. And do you know what Jesus is doing for us that I mentioned last week? He is in heaven right now as we take communion, interceding for us, Hebrews says. He's praying for you. He's interceding for those that don't know Christ yet. He's interceding and saying, Father, a little bit more time. Have mercy on them. Those loved ones that you wish would come to know, the Father that would come to know Christ, Jesus is in heaven saying, my saints are praying, wait. Have mercy on them. Jesus is serving us. He's serving his heavenly father. And that's what he asks us to do. That's communion. If you've not made that decision to surrender your life, communion can be the moment when you do, when you say, I'm done. I'm done trusting in my body. I'm done trusting in my sweat and blood to make things happen. I'm taking his and I surrender. And when you do that, it's a beautiful picture of what it means to say, you are the payment I deserve. And Jesus said, when you do this, remember it. And that's what this time of year is all about, to remind us that there's a day coming when the trumpet's going to blast, and we're going to eat with him forever, and it's going to be beautiful. And we're going to remember every day what he did for us and declare with the elders and the angels in heaven, he is the lamb that was slain. He is the one. 
amen and amen. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we are just going to be so enthralled.